Good morning, Axleander. Rick and Brenda here with our granddaughter, Riley. Um, we'd like to introduce her to you. And the reading for today is Leviticus 16, verse 20 through 28. It's your favorite book of the Bible. <laughs> when Aaron was finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forth the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the desert in the care of a man appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a solitary place, and the man shall release it into the desert. Then Aaron is to go into the tent of meeting and take off the linen garments. He put on before he entered the most holy place, and he is to leave them there. He shall bathe himself with water in a holy place and put on his regular garments. Then he shall come out and sacrifice the burnt offering for himself and the burnt offering for the people to make atonement for himself and for the people. He shall also burn the fat of the skins offering on the altar. The man who releases the goat as a scapegoat must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. The bull, the goat, the bull and the goat for their sin offerings, whose blood was brought into the most holy place to make atonement, must be taken outside the camp. Their hides, flesh, and offal are to be burned up. The man who burns them must wash his clothes and bathe himself with water. Afterward, he may come into the camp. That's the reading for today. New babies. Would you guys pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we encounter you in the word of Leviticus, Lord, as we see a God who wants us to be assured of our relationship with him, Lord, draw us closer to you. We say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. I'm going to confess to you guys. I'm going to make a confession, uh, something that happened almost 20 years ago now. So I am 37. I just turned 37 last month. Uh, and I started reading through the Bible when I was 17. That was really where God got his, heart, uh, his hands around my heart. And I wanted to know more about Scripture. And so I would read through the Bible every year. But the first five times I read through the Bible, I didn't cheat, but, but I did hack something. Uh, I loved Genesis, I loved Exodus, a lot of cool, fun stories in there, but I would get to Leviticus, and it was like I would hit this wall. Right? If you ever read through the book of Leviticus, it's repetitive, over and over and over again, it's talking about what we're supposed to do for very specific things, uh, but it's also weird, right? There's a lot of sacrifices, there's a lot of like putting blood on yourself, and I would I'd get trapped up in it. And so eventually what I started to do was if I had to go through the book of Leviticus, I would do it in one swoop. I would go to my sanctuary of my church. I would sit near the altar because I'm like, if I'm going to just do this, I want to be as close to God, quote unquote, as possible. And I would read through the book of Leviticus in one shot. Sit down for 45 minutes. Really wouldn't actually absorb anything, but I'm like, this is my duty. I have to do it. So I'm going to read through the book. And that's how I went through the book of Leviticus for the first five, probably 10 years of my life. Just get through. Just power through. And part of the reason why it was so difficult was because the context of Leviticus, if you don't understand what we've been talking about, the exegesis, right, what the original intent of a book was, of a writing was, any type of application to me was always lost. So I would read through it 
out of obligation, not because I thought there was anything there for me as a Christ follower. It wasn't part of my story. But as I encountered God, as I studied more, as I went to seminary, the point of Leviticus started to become more clear. Because the point, the context, the history that it was written in was of a people who God had redeemed, that he had rescued, but they weren't sure how to relate to God. And I don't know about you, but that question actually means something to me. Because sometimes I don't know how to relate to God. Sometimes my confidence in whether or not God is actually listening to me when I pray when I have concerns, when I have hopes, when I have dreams and I reach out to him, there can be a bit of fear of, does he actually hear me? Is this getting through? And that was a question that the Israelites were asking. In fact, that was a question that every religion was asking at the time. If you were Egyptian and you believed in Ra, or if you were from India and you were a Hindu, Buddhist, all were asking the same types of questions. And at that time, the sacrificial system was the way people reached out to God. So you would offer sacrifices to Zeus or to Aphrodite. And you would hope that in offering those sacrifices, if you did it right, just maybe they would hear you. Just maybe they would accept it this time. But gods were fickle. In fact, all the mythologies were consistent in that. Sometimes they listened, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes God heard you, sometimes they didn't care. But what we see in Leviticus is a very different God. It's a God who sets up a system to guarantee that the people would know that he heard them, that he cared for them, that they were in right relationship with him. That's what it means to be righteous, to have right relationships with God and to have right relationships with each other. And that's what the entire book of Leviticus is about. And in that context, all of a sudden, I have a better understanding of who my God is, who our God is, and how we apply that on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's why in Leviticus, it literally starts off Jumping into the end of Exodus. The end of Exodus, as AJ talked about last week, was God setting up a temple, a tabernacle, a place where people could go and know God is here. God is with us. Right? And the Torah, which we've been going through, the first five books of the Bible, they're meant to be read together. They're meant to be a continuous story. Not five individual books but one overarching narrative of who our God is, which is why Leviticus 1 jumps right in and says, The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, Whenever anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. I mean, it literally in res, jumps in. This is how you do your offering. This is how you do your sacrifices. And again, the point of this was to give the Israelites a guaranteed way to connect to God. And as I was trying to think through, okay, so how are we going to tackle this? Because as AJ was talking about last week, in fact, as we've learned throughout this entire Torah series, there was a lot to unpack here. 
And so to kind of help work on this, we're going to use a video called The Bible Project. We used this a couple years ago, and it's a really cool endeavor, initiative, where theologians and artists are coming together to help better explain the Bible. And so this is going to give us a quick five, seven-minute overview of what's going on in Leviticus, and then we're going to dive into one specific part that directly connects to Jesus. But to start off, again, we're going to watch this video that'll give us a bit more of a context of what God is doing in Leviticus today. The book of Leviticus, we know you've been avoiding it because it's weird. So let's fix that. Now remember, the story of the Bible began with humans in God's presence, but they were banished because of their rebellion. However, God wants to be in relationship with us, so he chooses one family that he will use to restore the world back into his presence. And so God's presence comes to dwell in a tent right in the middle of Israel. And that's great. But it creates a problem because it's so intense that Moses can't go in and other priests who enter inappropriately, they die. Well, wait, if God's presence is good, how is it all of a sudden dangerous for people? So think of it this way. God's presence is like the sun. It's pure power and goodness. And when something mortal and corruptible gets close to such pure power, it's destroyed. And so the word holiness is used in Leviticus to describe God's pure and powerful presence, which, like the sun, is both good and dangerous. So the point of Leviticus is to show how corrupt Israelites can live near God's goodness without being destroyed. Now, in the book, there are three ways for how this is all going to work out, and these are going to seem strange to you, but just hang in there with us. The first one is rituals, the second is this idea of the priesthood, and the third is a bunch of purity laws. Now, the book is broken up into seven sections, and each solution is explored in two sections of the book. The rituals are here, the priests are here, and the purity laws go here. Now, the first solution, rituals, involves a lot of animal sacrifices. And so Leviticus begins with detailed instructions for how to make these sacrifices. Some are ways of saying thank you to God, and others are simply ways of saying I'm sorry. And here at the end of the book, there are some more rituals. These are about observing sacred days and festivals. They're all celebrations that retell some part of the story of how God rescued Israel and set them apart from the nations. The second solution to the holiness problem has to do with priests. You see, being directly in God's presence is really dangerous. So he appoints priests as special representatives who can go into his presence on behalf of others. So in this section, we have a story about how the priests are ordained into the priesthood. And then this other section explains the set of higher standards that the priests have to live by because they work so closely to God's presence. The third solution in the book is all about purity laws. And this is by far the hardest thing to understand. For example, in this section, we're really concerned with knowing whether you're clean or unclean. Or another way of saying that is being pure and impure. And here's what we need to know to understand this. When you're in a pure state, you can be near God's presence. When you're in an impure state, you can't. And so it was really important for Israelites to know what state they're in at any given moment. So the first thing, 
we have is a list of pure and impure animals. Yeah, this list of animals is divided up by where they live. So on the land, in the sea, in the air. And the text is just not clear about why certain animals are impure or why touching or eating them makes you impure. What is clear, however, is that avoiding these creatures will set Israel apart and it will remind them that God's own holiness should affect every part of their lives, including what they eat. After the food laws, we get a lot of random rules about things like skin disease, touching dead bodies, what to do with bodily fluids. But they're not random. All of these are things that the Israelites associated with life and death, which are sacred things because God is the author of life. Okay, but simply coming into contact with these things makes you impure? They do, but we have to keep in mind that it's not wrong or sinful to be ritually impure. You just wait a few days, take a bath, offer sacrifice, and you're pure again. What is inappropriate is entering into God's presence when you're in an impure state. Now, there's more purity laws over here in this section. Yeah, these focus on Israel's moral behavior. So these are laws about social justice, healthy relationships, having sexual integrity. Living by these laws will make Israel into a morally pure people who can live near God's presence. Those are the three solutions. Now, you've probably noticed that they surround the very center of this book. And it's here that we find a really important ritual called the Day of Atonement. Yeah, so Israel's a big tribe now, and odds are there's a lot of sin happening that goes unnoticed that people are not dealing with. And so one time a year, the priests would take two goats, and one of those goats is killed, and its blood is carried right into God's presence where it symbolically covers or atones for Israel's sin. Yeah, that's kind of weird. Well, the meaning of the sacrifice, it's explained in the next chapter, where God says that the blood of a creature is its life. And so this goat's life is offered as a substitute. It's receiving God's punishment for Israel's sin so that the people don't have to. That leaves the second goat. Yeah, the priest puts his hands on it, and then he confesses all the sins of Israel. It's like he's placing the sins on the goat. And then that goat gets cast out forever into the wilderness. It's called the scapegoat. Yeah, I've heard that word before. Yeah, it's this very powerful image of how God is graciously removing Israel's sin. But let's be honest, sacrifices in general seem so barbaric. We have to remember that in the ancient world, sacrifices were the main way of buying favor from the gods. But the problem was that those same gods, they're unpredictable, they're fickle, you never know if they're going to ignore you or they're going to turn on you. And so it's in this cultural setting that we see Israel's God as totally different. He does get angry about human corruption, but it is never arbitrary and he loves people. So he provides this clear way for Israel to know with confidence that they are forgiven and that despite their corruption, they are safe to live near his presence. And so that makes the book of Leviticus actually a revolutionary statement in its day. So that's Leviticus. But Israel's still at Mount Sinai in the middle of the wilderness. They need a place to live. Yes, the land God promised to Abraham. And so the journey to that land is what the next book of the Bible is all about. Hi, this is Tim.
It's a way to pay for our rebellion. And so Leviticus, it sets up and answers the question, how does... Here we go. Um, answer the question, how can a sinful people have a relationship with a pure and a good God? And so he uses the ancient median of sacrifices, right, which was not unique to Israel. Right? The Greeks, they offered sacrifices. The Egyptians, they offered sacrifices in a way to appease their God, in a way to get the attention of their God. And yet God's heart for sacrifice was something different. We talk a lot about the difference between ritual and tradition. Ritual being the dead faith of the living, the dead faith of those who are alive, just going through the motions, but tradition being the living faith of the dead. Something that's been passed on to us that is still alive, even though our ancestors have already gone beyond us, that faith of theirs is still alive. And that's where the nuance of Leviticus, the nuance of the sacrificial starts to come into place. Because God did not want his people just going through the motions of these rituals. You see this really clearly in the story of David. David was the king of Israel. He was a man after God's own heart. He was doing it all right. And then David, in the story of Bathsheba, really, really breaks down. Adultery, murder, lying. Eventually, it all, it all comes to light. Nathan, the prophet, comes and he confronts David, and David has a choice. He can pretend everything's okay, he can go through the motions, or he can repent. And in the Psalms, in Psalm 51 specifically, David writes these words. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your, your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. Which seems weird because in Leviticus that's what it's all about. But David says, if that's all it is, if it's just going through the motions of your faith, you're missing the point. No, it says, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. He says, when we really repent, when we really come before God and are honest that, yes, we're broken, yes, we've made mistakes, yes, we have sinned against him, David writes that God will not despise that. And then the rituals, the traditions, the motions get new meaning. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, he says, and burnt offerings to delight you. Bowls will be offered on your altar. When your response is out of repentance, that's what God was after. But even more than that, the book of Leviticus is going to foreshadow something really important in the Christian faith. It's going to foreshadow a very important sacrifice that as Christians we know really well. The Maslinks read this earlier, but 
Does this sound familiar to you? The priest is to lay both hands on the head of a live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone for the appointed task. We're going to put all the sins on one being. Does that sound somewhat familiar to you in your faith? Did we do that? Did God do that? It's, it's the story of Jesus. God was foreshadowing the book of Leviticus, what he would ultimately do in the story, in the, narrator, in the narrative of our Savior. In the middle of that book, in the middle of that weird, strange rituals and sacrifices, there was a yearly event called the Day of Atonement, where two goats were chosen, one that would be murdered and the other that would take on all the sins of all the people. It's literally the story of Jesus. It's foreshadowing what God would do through his son as a way to guarantee how much does God love you. Did you ever play that game with kids or maybe with your parents? Do you love me this much? Do you love me this much? God played that game with us. And he said, I love you this much. I'll die for you. I'll take all the sin, all the rebellion, all the brokenness for you to guarantee that you have a relationship with me. That you can have a relationship with each other. You see this in the book of Hebrews where it says this, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. The law was the book of Leviticus. It was, it was foreshadowing something. For this reason, it can never be the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year. Make perfect, they cannot make perfect those who draw near to worship. However, by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The old system was a shadow. It was a placeholder for what God would ultimately do through his son, Jesus. That we wouldn't have to have the Day of Atonement over and over and over again, but instead, one God would do it all himself. One sacrifice to guarantee that God loves you, that he has forgiven you, that he has plans for you and that he's not done. Because that's the other thing about the book of Leviticus. It, it's not just about being made pure. It's not just about being in right relationship with God. It's about being in right relationship with God, being holy for a purpose. Speak to the entire assembly of Israel and say to them, be holy because you're God because I, the Lord your God, am holy. Be pure because I am pure. Be righteous because I am righteous. And, and he, he does that with a purpose. Because he has, he has plans for your life. 
He doesn't just die for you. He raises you back to life that we may live for him and that we can live for this world that he created. We can live for our families and our friends and our communities. It, it gives us purpose. This week I had the honor of officiating a funeral. We're a fairly young congregation. I have been blessed that I haven't had to do a lot of funerals. Uh, it wasn't a member of our church. It was uh, an extended family member of one of our members. And they reached out and said, hey, uh, we're in a little bit of a bind. Would you be willing to do this? And I said, yeah. And uh, typically when you're doing a, uh, a funeral for someone you don't know, you, you want to dive deep into, okay, who were they? What were they? Tell me their story. This was Donald Morrison. And he had a fascinating story. Donald Morrison was 95 years old. He had grandchildren. He had great-grandchildren. He had adopted grandchildren. Uh, it was clear this man was loved, and it was clear that he was loved because he loved them. And he, and he was a Christ follower, and he fought in World War II, like many of his generation, like both my grandfathers fought in World War II. But he had, a, he had a rather unique story. I want to show up a picture of this. So that's Donald Morrison, and that is a Bible that is next to him. This is a very special Bible, though. And the reason why it's a very special Bible is it was what he took with him when he went to war. And he was deployed, and they got into a battle. In fact, most of his platoon was killed. Shrapnel exploded next to him. It, it hit him in the head. And it hit him in his breast pocket. And over his breast pocket was that Bible. And the shrapnel fell on a very specific verse. That verse was 1 Corinthians 15. But by grace of God, I am what I am, and that grace was not without effect. No, I worked harder than them all. Other translations will say that grace was not in vain. That verse literally saved his life. You guys have heard of life verses before? This literally was this man's life verse. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. The Bible literally saved his life. But then he lived his life through that grace. Paul wrote those words to the Corinthians church. He says, by God's divine favor, by his mercy, by his love, I am what I am. And he says, and that grace is not in vain. That sacrifice of God is not in vain. This week, I got to spend time with Donald's family. And it was clear God's grace was not in vain. God's sacrifice was not in vain in Donald's life. And my prayer for us as a church, my prayer for myself, is that we see God's sacrifice. We see God saying, I love you this much. And then we realize he is calling us to share that grace, to live out of that divine favor in every relationship we have. Our relationship with him, for sure, but then our relationship with our neighbors, our relationship with the person who cuts us off when we're driving down the highway, the customer who gets upset with us, 
our relationship with those who are hurting, that God's grace would not be in vain, that we would do something with it, that we would be able to model and reflect God's love back to him and back to the world. The story of Leviticus is one of the ways our God says, I will meet you here. The story of Jesus is Emmanuel. God saying, I have met you here and now I am going with you. I am fighting for you and I am asking you to fight for others as well. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, it's easy to look at some of the books of the Bible and get lost in translation. Get lost in rituals that don't make sense to us or we don't have the context for. And yet, Lord, your word is clear that you will go to any length to have a relationship with us. Lord, that you will take all the brokenness, all the sin, all the rebellion, that you'll put it on yourself that our relationship with you can be restored. But beyond that, that our relationship with our neighbors and our families and our community can be restored as well. Lord, that your grace would not be in vain, but it would have effect. Lord, that it would leave every encounter changed and renewed and refreshed because we have you in our life. Lord, we say this all in your son's precious name. Amen. We worship.